0: We have just sung truths that are just so vitally important to be like an anchor in our soul. Something that just holds our soul, holds our confidence in place even in the midst of whatever it is that we might face. Now even having said that, this this mind of ours, it's amazing to to think about. And even though we don't think about it, it's amazing to... To just reflect on, I, I spent some time this week reading some journals, some academic journals that were way, way above me about how we make decisions, about how we as human beings make decisions. And it's an amazing thing. We have a little signpost, if you will. This is my definition of it. We have these little markers in our mind that we're constantly going back to. And we'll go back as far as we have to if the closest one in proximity doesn't work. But we're always working through this, uh, this process of making decisions based on how things have happened in the past, based on truths or realities around us. It's just an amazing thing to watch how we make decisions. Stress causes us to make decisions differently, often to make decisions poorly. When we are under stress, when we're tired, when we're fatigued, when we're under just relentless pressure, that whole decision-making process is thrown off track. And we can know something in the depth of our soul and act, on, act in a way that is contrary to that with biblical examples for instance we've looked at one of david's psalms this morning david says in psalm 27:1 the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear he says that repeatedly in several different psalms he says in psalm 31 i trust you o lord i say you are my god we read that in verse 14 of psalm 31 Look, if you want to turn there to Psalm 37, we spent some time looking at Psalm 37 a few weeks ago as we were looking through uh, the account of David's life. But the last two verses in Psalm 37, David just boldly and confidently proclaims the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. In Psalm 40, he makes that same confident assertion and then says, here's an implication of that assertion. In Psalm 40, in verse 4, he said, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud or to those who go astray after a lie. Do you hear that confidence in David's voice? Do you hear him just proclaiming God's faithfulness? So we hear that, and then we come to our text for the day, the passage that we're going to look at this morning in 1 Samuel. And the first thing we hear David saying is what he's saying to himself, what he says literally to his heart. It says in 1 Samuel 27, Then David said in his heart, or to his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over. And he lived with the king of the Philistines. He lived with him. For a year and four months, it tells us later on. What is up? He's so confident that God is his stronghold, that God's going to watch after him. And then we read here that he says, I'm going to perish by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me to do than to go. Crossover is a key term there. It, it, it means, yeah, he more, than just, he more than just changed locations. There's a change in context. There's a change in a frame of thinking almost. He went over. It's almost like Darth Vader, come to the dark side. His crossing over is significant. What made him make that decision? What's going on in his mind? And one commentator calls this propagandizing our soul. We all propagandize our soul. We all speak into our minds and into our souls, or allow others to speak into our minds and into our souls. And it is literally a propaganda in a sense, in that we're sometimes trying to convince ourselves of something, other times just trying to reinforce what we've always believed or thought we believed it's just an amazing process that goes on in our brains sometimes it's just a big mess i think david's in one of those times right here here's the main point it's in your sermon notes you can look at that and just kind of follow all of us all of us from a brand new believer to the most mature saint have times of spiritual testing that try us they test our faith They push us to and beyond our limits, and we often fail those tests. We could be described as more faithless than faithful. And even in a text, in a situation, this this chapter here has been called a godless text. Now it's hard for me to think about anything in the Bible being a godless text. But God's name is not mentioned here in 1 Samuel chapter 27. Nowhere. But even in a what quote would be a godless text, we see the invisible hand of God moving and we see him upholding his purposes and his plans and his people. And as the Apostle Paul says as he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless... He remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So let's look at Psalm. The, 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 the way these chapters are set up, and we've talked about this before, sometimes these chapters may come concurrently, they may not and what we're doing today is we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 27 and also 1 Samuel chapter 29. We're skipping chapter 28. Many commentators believe these things are actually going on concurrently. They're kind of going on at the same time. We, we don't have the privilege of knowing exactly how all this is being played out in some kind of timeline. But clearly, chapter 27 and 29 go together. And so we're going to look at them together in that sense. So I do want to read at least a portion of chapter 27. I've already read part of it where David is preaching, speaking to his own heart. So I'll pick it up there in verse 2. David arose and went over he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Makoah, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, and every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told, when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So it seems that David's scheme, his, his thinking in some sense is, is correct because, you know, Saul has never shown a propensity to do what the king of Israel was supposed to do, which is fight for and against the enemies of God's people. Saul's never been the one to take the initiative there. David's thinking, well, if I go live with the Philistines, he's not going to come to the Philistines. I'll be safe there. And it seems, at least on some level, that that's not a bad assessment, David. Because Saul no longer sought him. So David and his men, his 600 men, and their wives and children, some commentators say this could be as many as 3,000 people. So they're moving in to to the city here. They're moving into Gath. Actually, they move into a suburb. Look at verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Here's what I want us to see in this first part of this chapter. When our faith fails, we tend to look elsewhere for security. When we are tired, fatigued, beat down mentally or physically or spiritually, we can be like David. And I think he, te- he here is giving us kind of a picture of what it looks like to look to the world for our security. And listen to what David is saying to himself. It's important that we pay attention to that. Look at what he says in his heart. So he's self. You're going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. So fatigue and fear and anguish seem to be taking their toll here on David. And it's interesting that this word perish literally means to be swept away. And in one chapter before this, David professed to the one who was with him. I'm not sure how God will ultimately do it, but one day Saul is going to be swept away. He may be swept away on the battlefield, but God is going to take care of Saul. He said that just in the chapter before. And here he's using that same term to refer to himself. I'm going to be swept away. I'm going to perish. And I'm going to perish, he says, secondly, by the hand of Saul. You remember we've seen hand, that that term of the hand just repeatedly in 1 Samuel. And to have control, that's the idea of having control, having dominion. I'm the one who's calling the shots, whether it's the hand of Saul, whether it's the hand of God, whether it's the hand of David. And here David says, my life is in the hand of Saul. So not only do we get fatigued and anguished and we we say things wrongly and move in a wrong direction, but we our whole perspective gets clouded, if not completely shrouded. And David says, I'm going to perish at the hand of Saul. He's forgotten. He's forgotten what his, what his best friend, what his covenant friend Jonathan said to him just a couple of chapters before. Do not fear the hand of Saul, my father, shall not harm you. And he's, all, he, he's also, it seems, uh, forgotten the promise of God that the Lord will do good to you just as he has spoken to you. Abigail has said that to him. Samuel has said that to him. And here he says, there is no good for me. There's nothing better for me than I need to go live with the Philistines. So fear and anguish have taken a toll on him mentally and spiritually. He's forgotten, he's forgotten God's promises. He's not holding on to those promises. And not only that, after he's been there for just some period of time, and, and there's some logistical issues probably going on here, you don't just move into a small town or a small city with two or three thousand people and have any kind of freedom of movement or, and, and so David says, I have an idea, Akish. Why don't you just give me a small town? It's amazing that he does it. And so David here, you know what, maybe let's just cut him a little slack. He's not been able to sleep anywhere except in a cave. He's been on the run now for years. Maybe now he gets a good night's sleep in this little town that's been given to him here in the Philistine country. But he's given this town. And at least it's a, it's a reminder that, you know what, we can look to the world for security. And it doesn't take long till we get comfortable there we're we're just ready to pitch a tent and build a house and make our own little empires right there right there in the world right there among the very enemies of God at least in his own town David can come and go as he wants to he's not under the direct hand if you will of achish when our faith when our faith fails we tend to look to the world for security and not only do we look to the world for security we often act like the world for its own approval what comes next is is difficult. It, it, it should cause us to some difficulty. Now, David and his men went up and made raids against the Gershurites. I'm in verse eight and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. Verse nine says David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But he would take away the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys and the camels and the garments. And come back to Akish. And when Akish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. Or against the Negev of the Jehemalites. Or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath. Thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while that he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. When faith fails, not only do we turn to the world and often take comfort there, but then we begin to act like the world acts. So here's a kind of a hermeneutical principle. So something to help us kind of think through how we read, study, and process what we find in the Scriptures. Where the text is absolutely clear, we take it just fully. Not that we're going to dismiss any of the Bible. I'm talking about how we understand what's going on, what judgments we make on it. Sometimes we're not left to make any judgments on it because the Scripture is clear about what it says about itself or about that individual. Where the text is clear, we just accept it. Now where the text is silent, we need to assess it very carefully. Where the text is silent in passing judgment or critiquing or giving us perspective, we need to be careful about how we approach that text and let all of Scripture be the means by which we understand what's going on here. Here's what I mean by that. Some look at what's happening here, and and let's just understand exactly what's happening here. Here, this much is clear: David is violent here, and David is deceptive. He is violent and deceptive. He is going out, what seems to be on daily raids, just marauding the countryside, taking everything and leaving no one alive. That's what. That much is clear in the text. He's violent and he's deceiving. The text is also clear that this violence this is ruthless and it is self-serving. I point that out simply because some would point to the ban is the term that's used in the Old Testament where God gave clear instructions that are still difficult for us to comprehend sometimes and understand that when the enemy, when the people of God were moving into these lands and these ungodly, these ungodly pagan lands were inhabited by these ungodly pagan people they were to be wiped out it's called the ban god is saying they're to be devoted to me to destruction it's a picture of god's holiness and his wrath on sin in the big picture of things and some will say well david is just carrying out the ban here and i would say absolutely not. no that is not what's happening here now understand he is coming back to achish at the end of each raid and telling achish that he is attacking the people of judah or the lands of Judah, his own his own country, his own people. But in reality, he's not. He's attacking those who are not part of God's covenant people. So in one sense, he's attacking the enemies of God and telling Achish that he's attacking the enemies of Achish. So Achish is all in on this, right? I mean, every day, David's bringing him gifts and bounty and booty and all this that he's captured for the day. But why is it that David is carrying out this ruthless violence? Because he wants to leave no witnesses alive. That could come back to Achish and say, well, wait a minute. No, he's not attacking Judah. So he's violent. He's deceiving. He's ruthless. He's self-serving. And here he's bringing all these spoils back daily. The sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the clothes. He's bringing all of this back. To Akish, and he's gaining this foolish king's trust. I mean, Akish is all in on this. And he is all in, it says in verse 12, because he's thinking since David is attacking his own people, they hate him. He's an utter stench. He stinks to them. So he's always going to be able to stay here. He's never going to be able to go back home. This is a godless text. That presents a lot of difficulty for what we're to see in it and how we're to process it and and take anything from it. And it gets worse. Look at verse 20, look at chapter 28. I just want you to see two verses there. So, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel and Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So one other thing that happens when when our faith does falter and fail and we look to the world for security and we look to the world and act like the world to gain its approval, sometimes success in that context is going to be more than we bargained for. We're going to get way more than we thought we might get. So David here is being successful in his daily marauding. He's being successful in killing off all of the witnesses. And he's successful in deceiving Achish and gaining his trust. He's gained the trust of this Philistine king to the extent that as the Philistines are gathering their forces for war. So understand what's going on here. You're going to see this later on in chapter 28 next week. You're going to see Saul is about to be told by the witch, by the medium, through this weird unfolding sequence of events. That you're about to die at the hands of the Philistines. So the the Philistines are, are gathering their armies to go fight the people of God. To fight Israel. To fight King Saul and his armies. And as they're mustering up their armies... This this general, if you will, or this officer, Achish, who is also the king of Gath, as he's gathering up his militia to go be a part of this larger Philistine army, says, David, you've proven yourself to be such a good warrior. I want you on my team. I want you with my army as we go up to fight Judah. This is crazy. The one who's been anointed by God to be the king of Israel is about to take up arms against Israel. So he's turned for security. He's turned for approval to the world. And now the world recognizes his worth and his value, at least in their frame of thinking. Remember what it said back in chapter 16, verse 18 about David. When when someone came. And was basically announcing or introducing David. They said he is a man of valor, a man of war. He's prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. So he's a man of valor, a man of war, and he's prudent in speech. He's a good fighter and he's a good talker. And both of those things have won him a great deal of favor with Achish. And now he's being drafted into the Philistine army. What in the world is he going to do? Being a man of war. Has served him well among the Philistines. Being prudent in speech, quick on his feet, able to come up with a pretty good story, that's gained him pretty good standing. He's deceived this king, but he's in a tough spot now, right? How can the anointed one who is to be the king of Israel take up arms against Israel? And if he refuses to take up arms against Israel, as he's surrounded by Achish and all the rest of the Philistines, what Saul could not do, Achish may well be able to do very quickly. So David has gotten himself into a fix, right? He's, he's got some safety. He's got some freedom. he's being successful at least as far as his marauding goes. But now all of a sudden, he's really in between a rock and a hard place. What's he going to do? Well, the story picks up in chapter twenty-nine. So, really, if, if if we didn't have these chapter numbers, chapter twenty-seven could really go through twenty-eight two, and then we could skip right over to chapter twenty-nine because it says the Philistines gathered their forces for war in twenty-eight one. In twenty-nine one, now it says the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And so the army of the Philistines is on one side. The army of the Israelites is on the other. And everybody knows what's about to go down. This is not clandestine. This is not in the cover of night. There's a massive army of Philistines being gathered against the armies of Israel. So here's what we say. Now David has made this amazing claim to Achish back in chapter 28. Well, you're going to see what your servant can do. What does he mean by that? I have no earthly idea. I'm just not sure. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean that, okay, Akish, I'm all in. I'm going to, you're going to see how hard I fight for Israel, excuse me, for, for the Philistines. Or it could mean you're going to see what David will do. And he gets into this battle and ends up fighting for Israel instead, from the inside, if you will. There's all kinds of conjectures about what exactly David might mean here. Whatever he did mean, Akish understood it this way. I'm so impressed, I want you to be my bodyguard from now on. Literally, the protector of my head. Now think for just a second. Okay, don't let this zoom past you. The king of the hometown of Goliath has just made the one who took Goliath's head off the protector of his head. Hmm. What an idiot. (laughs) And that's exactly what those who are superior officers to him say. Look at the rest of chapter 29 all of the men so there's this military review going on okay seems like or these these the lords of the Philistines this is the high command of the Philistines are reviewing or looking at all of their troops and they are passing by in the hundreds and by the thousands it says in verse 2 and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish so here comes Achish and his army and here's David and his men and something clearly makes them stand out and look at what they say in verse 3 what are these Hebrews doing here And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. So whether it's physical appearance, something. They stand out as the Philistines are marching by all the generals. And they see David there with the rest of the Hebrews and go, what in the world? What are these guys doing here? And Achish speaks up to defend David. And he's a little exaggerating about the time that he's been there. He's been with me days and years. Well, no, not really that long, Achish. But to his credit, Achish says, I find no fault in him. So as you see this, Achish has bought at hook, line, and sinker. But his gullibility and what really is foolishness comes to a quick end. Because those who are commanders of the Philistines just call it to a stop. What in the world? Send this. The commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And Hebrew scholars say that idea of being angry there is the idea of a superior being disdainfully angry towards someone below them. So the Philistine generals are going, you idiot. What are you thinking? They're angry with him. And they say, send this man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? And what Lord are they talking about there? Well, Achish has already said he's a servant of Saul, the king of Israel. That really should not be, I don't think, a capital L for reconciling himself to the Lord God. They're talking about his earthly Relationships and his, uh, you know, where his allegiances lie. How can he ever go back home and reconcile himself, they say? We don't want him with us. Wouldn't, would it not be with the heads of the men here, they say in verse seven? So these generals here are looking around at each other and looking at David and say the only way he's going to ever be received back in Israel is if he goes back carrying our heads. We want none of that. We know how that works out. And is not this David of whom they have sung these songs, it says. They sing to one another in dances. So this top 40 Jewish hit has made its way to Philistines. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Everybody knows that song by now. So do you see... How's David going to get out of this mess? Well, it seems, surprisingly... Some things are beginning to unfold. The Philistine generals recognize he is not one of us. And his presence is not healthy for us. If he turns on us, it will not be a good thing. And he has a reputation. And David's reputation among the Philistines is built upon the graves of thousands of Philistines that he slayed. So it's pretty cut and dried to them. He's not going to be here. And even Achish's appeal gets nowhere. So look how it unfolds now. Starting in verse 6. Achish called David and he said to him... (laughs) This is is amazing in verse 6. As the Lord lives... and, And this is the only reference to God in these two chapters. And it comes from the Philistine king. And whether or not he is simply repeating what maybe he has heard David say in the past... Clearly, it's not a statement of faith in any way. Achish is just swearing by David's God, I think. As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and end with me in this campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, I've been overruled. So in verse 7, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David, if you stay, it's just not going to go well. And David said to Achish, "But what have I done?" That's a good phrase that David seems to be repeating, right? I mean, he said that to Saul, he said that to Jonathan, now he says that to Achish. "What have I done?" What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord King? David seems to be arguing to go into this battle. But Achish will have none of it. And again, he says, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go with us to the battle. Now, then arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you. And start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So there's just more than a little bit of irony in this conversation between Achish and David. It's ironic, is it not, that the Philistine king is the only one who mentions God? It's ironic, is it not... That this Philistine king continues to testify to David's innocence. Even though David has been lying to him the whole time. Is it not ironic that the king of the Philistines is, is just praising David for his loyalty? And yet as we look at it from the big picture. His loyalty to who? And is it not ironic that David's protest in his defense could in fact be a plan to attack against it says to go fight against the enemies of my lord the king well David which king are you talking about are you talking about King Achish or are you talking about King Saul which king are you thinking that you're going to go into this battle to fight for or against and and we don't know the text doesn't tell us Formally, it appears, at least on the surface, he's trying to convince Achish that he is loyal to Achish. But he could have just as equally been saying, no, my plan is to go into this battle and I'll show you what I can do on behalf of Saul and and our God. So we don't really know whether David's saying, I'm going to get into this battle. It doesn't matter. He's not going into that battle. And he's told to go and he goes. It's a weird text. 27 and 29 are just... There's some of those passages where we, we can, because of these chapters like this, listen, take great confidence in the truthfulness of God's Word. Because to use the phrase of the commentator, if we're going to propagandize people, we're not putting this kind of stuff in this book. Right? We want our heroes to look good. We want those that we esteem and lift up on pedestals to stand on that pedestal and be something you want to look at. David is not something we want to look at in these passages. David is not a model. I don't believe. In chapters 27 and 29. But there is a contrast, continual contrast between David and Saul. And you'll see this next week. At the end of chapter 28, Saul and his servants rise and go away into the night. In chapter 29, David and his servants arise early in the morning and go away into the light. That light and dark is, in the big picture of things, significant. So what do we do with this? What do we, how do we apply a passage like this into our lives? Well, let me give you these applications. You have them in your sermon notes, but just follow along with me right quick. When our faith fails, God's doesn't. Somebody, amen. He remains faithful, but there are still consequences. The text here does not judge or speak one way or the other about David's marauding, about his violence, or about his deception. The text is silent. There's there's nothing in these passages right here that we've just seen that speak to it one way or the other. But as I was reading through this and just working through this, there is a cost to David's violence. And by that I mean if we take the long road look, if we look down the road, here's, here's what God will eventually say to David over in the book of 1 Chronicles in chapter 22, David wants to build God a temple. He wants to build a place of worship for God. And here's what the Lord says to David. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. I didn't find a single commentator that pointed to this, but I just cannot I cannot think that that's at least not part of what God is saying to David. You have been violent. You have shed much blood. I do not want a man of war building my place of worship. I want a man of peace doing that. And Solomon would be that man. Here's my point. I don't know when. I don't know where. But there are consequences to those times when our faith fails. They may be very short term. I also know that all those failures of our faith are covered by God's mercy. They are covered by God's mercy. But there are still consequences and cost, and we just need to be reminded of that. Secondly, we can be thankful that when our faith fails... God continues to stay faithful, and he's going to stay faithful to his own purposes, his own plans, and his own people. And kind of tying into that next point, even though we may not see it, we can be absolutely assured of that. I love what Proverbs 21.1 says here, because it is an illustration of this biblical truth from Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will." You need to remember that. We need to remember that, church. When we see things going on around us, socio-politically, when we see things going nuts in the world, we need to remember that our sovereign God is directing the hearts, even the hearts of the most blatant pagans, just as the riverbanks direct the river, God is directing it according to His purposes, His plans, and what He will ultimately do in and through His people. We trust that. We rest in that. And this is an illustration of that. Those Philistine kings are being used by the Lord to deliver God's anointed by the fact that we'll not have that Hebrew fighting with us. All praise in this passage goes to the God who is moving here. Unspoken and unseen, but moving. And here's final application. And this is a good application for us as we get ready to come to the communion table today. Remember, there's an overarching theme here of David in this season of his life going through the wilderness. Right? He was in Saul's palace. He was living with the king. He now has to be on the run. He's in these years of wilderness running for his life. And there's a clear parallel here to the wilderness journeys of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. And as David goes through these wilderness journeys, he he faces all kinds of difficulties, trials, threats on his life. And on the way, he is successful some and he is unsuccessful some. On the way, he shows himself to be trustworthy and other ways he shows himself to be a liar. He shows himself sometimes to be compassionate, sometimes he's ruthless and has to be stopped in his own tracks from taking people's lives. David is on a wilderness journey to the throne, but he is not spotless in that journey. David's greater son went through the wilderness on the way to his throne, and he was spotless. It's interesting that Akish, three times in this text, speaks to the integrity of David, speaks to David's innocence. In chapter 29, three times, verses 3, 6, and 9, Achaz says, I find no fault in him to this day. He says in verse 6, I find nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to this day. In verse 9, he says, not only are you blameless, but you're as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Three times this king testifies to David's blamelessness. There was another king... There was another man seated on the seat of judgment when David's greater son was on trial. And three times he said, I find no fault in him. Read John's account. When Jesus is on trial for his life and brought before Pontius Pilate, three times Pontius Pilate says, I find no fault in him. You're right, Pilate. There is no fault in him. You're wrong, Akish. David is not spotless, and he is not without fault. There's only one king, one savior, one deliverer who is without guilt and without fault. Isaiah said it in Isaiah chapter 53. Peter repeats it in chapter 2, verse 22 of First Peter. He committed he committed no sin, and neither was there any deceit in his mouth. That's Jesus. And this convoluted text the 1 Samuel 27 and 29 points us to Jesus. The outcome for David, the anointed one of God, would be good. In fact, in chapter 30, he's going to be the savior of a few people. But the outcome of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is spotless and without guile and without deceit, Is the only Savior. Capital S. Is he yours? Have you trusted in Christ? We we practice here at Westwood communion. Because Jesus commanded us to do that. And the way we practice it here is this table is reserved. It's not reserved just for members of Westwood. Some churches do that. We don't. It is reserved for those who have trusted in Christ. Those repentant of their sins turn by faith to Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. And if you've trusted in Christ today, you're invited to this table. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you and thank you for this word today. Thank you that in Christ it makes sense. Thank you that in Jesus we find a Savior Who is perfect without blemish, without spot, no deceit, no guile, no pretense. And thank you that by faith we can know him as our own. Because you have known us from before the foundation of the world and called us to yourself. So, Father, teach us, I pray, to walk in the light of your countenance. Let this word, Lord, be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And Father, let it, as much as anything, point us back to this table where we're reminded of the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ that is broken and shed for those who will put their faith and trust in Him. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.